Welcome to the Pain-Free Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Mariah Heller, and if there's one thing I've learned after being a fitness and health professional and a chronic pain sufferer for over a decade, it's that every body is unique. On this show, I sit down with health and wellness experts in an effort to gather as many different perspectives, journeys, and philosophies as possible. Join me in cultivating a collective growth mindset and challenge yourself to take away just one key point from each episode that inspires you to think or behave differently. Have a pain-free day and enjoy this episode. What is going on, beautiful people? It is Mariah here from Pain-Free Fitness. And if you are listening for the first time, uh, you should know that my goal with this podcast is to help create kind of a collective growth mindset in the fitness and wellness industries and any of the adjacent industries as well. And I think that one of the ways that we do that is by just having conversations with a lot of people with kind of diverse experiences in these fields and seeing what we can learn. So my goal and my definition of success for every episode is for everyone just to take away, even if it's just one thing that can help you think about things a different way or be a better coach if that's what you're listening for, or think about your body differently if you are just listening in from that side of things. Um, however works, that would be my my definition of success and my intention for every episode. And I think with the guest that I have today, that will be a very easy thing to do because she is awesome. Uh, Jill Coleman to me is just the, the definition of like a multi hyphenate. So she is the uh, founder of Jill Fitz. She's also the co-founder of the Metabolic Effect. And she has actually been kind of on this fitness journey since she was 15 years old and experienced quite a few ups and downs. And I am super excited to kind of talk about those because who hasn't, right? Especially the women in this industry. And uh, she also helps kind of um, do business coaching for women and just other fitness professionals who are trying to grow their businesses, trying to help improve their social media presences, which is so, so important. And that's something that I really admire about you, Jill, is that you are not only helping spread your own message, but you're having that trickle down effect of just helping other people help so many other people. So thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be able to make it happen after a couple of reschedules. So yeah, yeah, no, me too. I, I am just super excited to chat with you and, you know, I'm really curious just seeing how, uh, how many things you're involved in now, but also like how your journey has been kind of coming to this point. I would love to just hear a little bit more about that. Like what got you to the point that you're at right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, like you said in my bio, I've been in the industry for a long time, uh, started personal training at an early age and then got into like many do in their 20s, especially those of us who just absolutely love fitness, grew up in sports, wanting to push the envelope a little bit and deciding like, okay, like I'm in my 20s. Let me see if I can actually get to the next most elite version of fitness. And so for a lot of people, and it was my experience as well, we do fitness competitions. So I started getting into figure competitions, uh, fitness modeling. I was personal training about 70 to 80 hours a week in the gym, loving every minute of it. But what ended up happening, and this is kind of a cautionary tale for a lot of those, maybe if you're listening, you probably have this experience where 
something that starts out being a really good thing, like being consistent with your training and paying attention to your nutrition ends up becoming a little bit toxic. And for me, it became very obsessive um, to the point where I constantly felt like I was uh, thinking about food all the time, thinking about my body all the time, needing to look a certain way, just crippled with anxiety. Um, and what happened when I was, I was doing shows for about six years straight and I was just doing them and using, honestly, using competitions as diets. <laughs> like, I was like, okay, I have another show coming up. I need to lose 20 pounds. And then I'd get off stage and I would, over the course of the next six months or so, gain it all back. And so I had a long history of depriving and binging and sort of chronic yo-yo dieting. And it wasn't until I started my business at jillfit.com when I was 29 years old as a blog um, that I was like, you know what? I really want to figure out how to you know, make an impact that and have something that means something more to me than just my own body. You know, I think if especially if you go down that sort of like body obsession rabbit hole, it can feel really myopic. Like it's the only thing you think about, are my abs showing? Am I getting leaner? Am I gaining weight? Am I bloated? Whatever. And so when I started Jill Fit as a blog at first, I was just like, here's a place for me to just put some of the conversations I was having with clients in the gym. So I was like, I'm going to talk about fitness tips, nutrition tips, workouts, recipes, like super basic stuff. But what happened was I was just really consistent. And I actually grew the readership at jillfit.com um, as a blog for like, I don't know, maybe the first two years I blogged every single day. And so we grew a really loyal readership. And this is back in 2011, 2012, when blogs were kind of big. Um, this is before Instagram and things like that. And I started doing one-on-one -on -one coaching online. So now I'm at the gym all day and then I'm coming home and I'm writing meal plans and writing workout programs for people until like one in the morning. So I remember thinking to myself, in order to really make this online thing successful, I have to figure out my eating and exercise. I can't be at the gym three times a day. I can't be eating seven times a day. I can't be eating out of Tupperwares and constantly obsessed because it's not just the time it takes. And if you've experienced this, it's the mental energy. So I wanted to figure out a way to really make this simple for myself. And sort of out of that came my own transformation into moderation, mindful eating, what I guess we now consider intuitive eating. And that took me about three full years. But in that time, Jill Fit started growing really significantly, pretty quickly as a business. And people started asking me, like, what are you doing? Like, how are you doing what you're doing? How are you having, you know, working with people all over the country, all over the world? How does that work? And at the time, I obviously didn't know everything, but I knew at least what I had done and I could share what I had done. So at that point, it was like, you just blog every day and then people find you and, you know, you have good content. And so now I love the fact that like when I work with, with students now to build their business, personal trainers, health coaches, nutrition coaches, that we have so many places that we can put our content, right? Social media, there's so many different platforms, things that we didn't have 10 years ago. Um, so it's been really fun for me to have my hand in sort of like the online business marketing space for the last eight, nine years to see how things have completely changed. And like you mentioned before, being able to sort of have my hand in other people's success. And to me, that gives me so much more meaning and purpose than <laughs> obsessing over my body ever could. So yeah, it's been an amazing journey. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, a couple of things that you said that, that I want to revisit, but the subject of kind of, I don't want to say maybe disordered, but maybe some obsessive eating has come up maybe once or twice on the podcast, but it's not something I've addressed a ton. And I know that is so common, more common than a lot of people will admit. And I know coming from kind of a disordered eating background myself, competing was one of the worst things that I did <laughs> for that. And I think there's a very specific kind of subset of people who actually like, they benefit from that. Like maybe they come from a super disordered eating history and competing kind of helps them feel like they have some normalcy and some validation. But I know for me, it was 
a long process of getting to a point where I felt like I could eat intuitively and my hunger and satiety levels and all of that were normal. So can you tell me just a little bit about kind of what that process was like for you getting to that place? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this is back in, I made, I remember I had like an aha moment. It was in 2011 and I had just finished up my very first, I was dieting pretty much straight for like nine months. Um, I was constantly starving, constantly craving sweets. Like I was completely just sort of dieted myself into a corner. And I remember I had uh, one final competition and a couple of photo shoots. And as soon as that was over, I remember thinking to myself, okay, Jill, there's no more shows, no more shoots on your schedule. You need to figure out how to do this for good. You need to be able to, you can't keep doing this back and forth thing. Um, and so I didn't know what that looked like. I knew what dieting looked like, really strict dieting. And I knew what binging looked like and being off season. I knew what that looked like, but I never knew what the middle looked like. And I remember like even just going to the grocery store and going like, I don't know what to buy, right? I'm either buying junk food or I'm buying diet food. I don't know what the middle looks like. And at that time, this is before like intuitive eating was even a thing. No one's really talking about this, especially in the early days of blogging and social media, you know, where you're thinking this is very beginning of everyone gets Facebook. No one was admitting that they were struggling with their eating. And I remember looking around and being like, why is it so easy for everyone else. Where, where's everyone else who's gaining 20 pounds after their competition? Why are we talking about this? The magazines aren't talking about it. And I remember just feeling so alone and just, uh, just like rudderless. You know, I didn't know where to look. I didn't know, no one was talking about this. It wasn't a thing. I had a lot of shame around it. Here I am a personal trainer and a nutrition coach. I had my master's in nutrition and I like can't even stay on my own diets. And I remember feeling so much shame over that. And so I started, what I remember is totally around, because, you know, if you, you did competition, so you get it, like protein bars, like weren't allowed, right? Stuff like that, like protein bars, protein shakes, like these just random foods that you and I probably consider healthy. So I remember being like, well, maybe this week I'll just have a protein bar or two. Like, I remember it just started with small things like that. Maybe I'll get like a little sprinkle of cheese on my salad. Maybe I'll use a little butter in my vegetables, like little small things that now looking back are completely neurotic. But at the time that was me trying to take steps to find what I now call moderation of 365, which is my sort of nutrition philosophy. And it took me three full years to make that shift from this very sort of all or nothing mentality to being able to, you mentioned like mindfulness or understanding your biofeedback signals, like cravings, hunger, satiety, um, you know, satisfaction, fullness, energy, all those kind of things. Dieting takes us out of that stuff, right? It says, you know what? Don't listen to your hunger, eat according to a clock. And so you and I are going, well, it's, I can't have cars past four o'clock. I can't eat past seven. Like, you know, so you're not paying attention to what's happening. And I think most of us just think that's dieting. You, you want to lose weight. You just got to, you know, you got to stick to the rules. And so it was a process really of just unlearning a lot of obsessive dieting behaviors. And so now I actually reverse engineered my process and took like thousands of people through that, that system, that moderation 365 system to now it's actually a certification. So it's not a weight loss certification. It's not like a body chain certification. It is literally a food obsession certification where people who are recovering food obsessives, neurotic, poor, poor food relationship, that's what we help them with literally over the course of 12 weeks is we, we teach them these mindfulness strategies and practice. And we just kind of retool their mindset. Um, and so it was a long, I, a long 
it was long for me because there wasn't anyone else doing it at the time. I'm sure there were, but they weren't in my orbit. And so, you know, now that we are, have a lot more people talking about their experience and going through that, and we have a lot more tools and books and podcasts and whatever, I think it happens a lot faster for people to be able to sort of make that shift. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like there's a huge value in, like you said, just understanding that I am not the only person that is dealing with this because it felt to me when I was in the competition world that it, it was almost perceived as a weakness. If you gained a bunch of weight after a show, or if you lost the ability to intuitively eat or anything like that, that normally comes with, you know, obsessive eating for a, even a small amount of time. Um, and so I would imagine kind of the, the intersection of social media and, you know, competition lifestyle, just getting so much more popular that that's something that's like really helping people right now too. just kind of know that they have a community. I think and there's options, right? There's more on the menu now than there ever has been, you know? So at least when I was sort of doing it, and you competed, so you got this too. You got a lot of affirmation for your looks when you were dieting. People were like, when's your show? You look amazing. Like, and so then after the show is over and you gain back 10, 20, like I did 20, 20, 30 pounds, yeah. where are the comments, right? Where's the affirmation? Where's the like, you look great, you're doing great, you know? And, and, I, and my 24 year old brain didn't really, um, you know, it couldn't compute. And so for me, I just latched on to, well, I just need to do another show to get that affirmation. And I remember I was actually married at the time, my late twenties. And I remember I was so upset because I was uh, crying. I felt like I was bloated. I don't know, like whatever. And my then husband said to me, Jill, you have a master's in nutrition. Like, why is the only thing you can think about your body? Why don't you, he's like, you're a great writer. Why don't you do something with that? Like, why is this the only way that you feel worthy in the world? And I think that was the first time. And at the time I couldn't hear it. Cause like you said, I think the bodybuilding sort of culture is very much like willpower and, you know, sacrifice and those things are sort of coveted, you know, not everyone can do what we do, right? Cause we're, we're hardcore. And there's something about that, that feels really good. I'm able to do something not a lot of people are able to do. And so you sort of hang your hat on that. And then when you inevitably physiologically can't do it anymore because your body is so starving, you, you're literally, your metabolism is compensated to the point where like you can't stay on a diet. Then you're like, that's my entire self-worth is over there. And I can't do it anymore, either psychologically or physiologically. So who am I now without that? And I think for me, a big turning point was having something else to give me a sense of meaning. I think it's, I think obsessing about your body is sort of a low hanging fruit. I think if you have something else that you're excited about, that's not just about your own body, that it helps you feel a level of purpose and fulfillment outside of those things. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I had a very similar journey with having a chronic pain disorder um, that went, you know, or an autoimmune stuff that went undiagnosed for a long time and slowly watching my strength and just like my physical state deteriorate over several years. Heartbreaking. Kind of heartbreaking. Exactly. And like you said, it's kind of like, if I can't do these things anymore, then who am I? And it really was kind of pivoting into like from just the generic fitness industry into like pain-free fitness in particular that helped me actually feel like that was all worth something. And that like, I could, I was like, I've learned so many lessons because of this. I can teach that to my clients now. And that kind of helped it all feel like, okay, this, this happened for a reason. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. I think we're like, we're really good at that. I mean, I, I think that's one of our, honestly, humans, like it's one of our superpowers to be able to look back at really shitty times in our life and go like, what was that for? At the time we couldn't see it, right? All we could see was, why is this happening to me? Why is no one else dealing with this? Like, you know, we just, it's very myopic, but now looking back, you can go, okay, that was for something. And now I have this gift that I can go and share in the world. And obviously that's what you've done with this podcast and with your business and all the people that you help. And I think that you have to have a sense of meaning. You go, you know, that was for something. And now we just launched the certification for moderation 365 last year for the first time we've had three classes of students go through so far and like it's a trickle down effect right now i'm seeing them literally using my language my ip all you know my proprietary frameworks to help their own clients all over the world um and then you just go damn yes this is something that's needed and i'm glad that no one has to feel alone like i did absolutely yeah yeah, absolutely. And it's nice to see how much that that particular area of things is growing too. Tons. And that's the thing is like, if you've never experienced it, you're probably like, this feels like a really <laughs> just like tangential conversation. But as soon as you start paying attention to it on social media or whatever, you see like, wow, this is really, really prevalent. And it doesn't even have to be competitors, right? It can just be like the average mom who did Weight Watchers and lost 50 pounds 10 years ago, and then has since been able to trying to recapture that weight loss by doing a whole bunch of things. So I really just like talk about like chronic dieting, right? Chronic sort of yo-yo dieting, like you, you, something works for a time and then you gain weight back. And then you go, I just need to go back to that thing, right? That was like 10 years ago. And so it's just, there's this constant because you were getting that affirmation or you felt good about yourself or whatever. And you have to feel like you have to recapture that. And so it is, it's not just for the super lean people. It's for, you know, anyone who's done a lot of chronic dieting. Absolutely. Yeah. Moderation 365 is the name of the program, right? Yeah. yeah. There's an Instagram. If you guys are interested, just go to moderation 365, a lot of like tools, strategies, and tactics. If you guys are curious, yeah, you can get, you can go down the rabbit hole over there. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. I think really, really good tools for any trainer to have, because I also very much have observed how the fitness industry tends to attract people that are more extreme in their mindsets, both trainers and clients, right? You'll get people that come to you that are like, I want to eat a thousand calories a day and run a marathon and power lift and, you know, all of that stuff. And I think yeah. I'm sure the principles from Moderation 365 can kind of help you <laughs> navigate those client conversations as well, right? And we're seeing a lot more language, I think, around mindfulness and moderation. I think like those terms, I don't love those terms. I feel like people's eyes sort of gloss over like, oh yeah, mindfulness. Yeah, whatever. Like that's for like yoga teachers and like whatever. But when you think about it, like when we're talking about it, we're having a very just frank conversation around physiology, right? When you notice, you literally just notice, yeah, on a scale from one to 10, I'm like, I'm like 80% full, right? Like that's just, and obviously that's not objective. That's you just deciding hundred <laughs> percent would be my, I'm stuffed into my clothes. 80% is like, yeah, I'm good. Like I could eat more, but I'm good. And then you start to recognize that feeling, that 80% fullness feeling, that's mindfulness. Literally just having that tiny insight. I'm at about 80% full right now. Or you know what? I'm not super hungry right now. I could probably eat in like an hour or two. Just that statement alone is mindfulness, right? You don't need to be sitting there on a pillow, you know, meditating to be mindful. It's literally just noticing what's happening in your body. And so many of us have either never learned that or we're taken out of our body because of all the dieting. So being able to be put back in touch with that is it's a superpower and it is, it's a practice. It's not something you just decide and you're good, but mindfulness is, and I'm sure you've had this experience. 
once you start practicing it, like a, even just a little bit, it becomes automatic pretty quickly, yeah. right? It takes a lot of conscious effort at the beginning to like sort of notice how you're feeling because you haven't before, but now you're like, oh, you wake up six months later and you're like, oh, I haven't binge eight in like six months. I just know how I feel inside. I know it feels good for my body. I know what, what I can eat and what I can't eat and like what feels good and whatever. So even just a little bit of practice goes a long way. So when in moderation 365, I really try to quantify those terms because I hate when someone just says, well, just eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full. If you have a disordered relationship with food, you don't know what they're talking about. You're like, I'm starving all the time, right? <laughs> like you don't have any sort of metric or any sort of way to gauge that. And so in moderation 365, I really try and put tools and actual like strategies and practices to a lot of this stuff that's just out there in like the more inspo space. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that's, it's super powerful. And I think it also, from what it sounds like, it helps people almost rewire this, I think conditioned and also somewhat natural mechanism that we have for feeling like we've done something good, you know, and I try to encourage this with my clients a lot, you know, it's, it's not about, you know, I, I think people want to say, okay, well, for example, I, um, I, I didn't eat dessert, therefore I've done something good, right? And they kind of attach their good feelings to restriction. Or yep. I am only going to feel like I've done something good when I don't have any back pain anymore, right? But it's really about like figuring out, okay, I could have two bites of dessert and then like be okay or recognize when I'm full and not have to eat the whole thing. Like that's what you should wire your brain to kind of think about. Yeah. yeah. Totally. It's these like just levels of gray, you know, and it's interesting. I'll just tell your audience this and you probably know this, but when, when someone wants to write a diet book, like you have a, you know, RD or someone wants to write a diet book, a publisher will literally say there needs to be a hook to this book. I can't sell this book if there's not a hook or a rule or something. And so they have to go back and they have to make it sexier. So the idea that a book would ever be sold on like, just eat moderately every single day for the rest of your life. Like a publisher wouldn't be able to sell that book. So yeah. a lot of it really does come down to like how stuff is marketed. And because of that, we do have this very like moral way of looking at things, black and white, right? All or nothing, no back pain, all back pain, no dessert, all the dessert, you know? So the nuance there I think is why professionals like you and me and other people doing this work, like that's why it's needed because we have to have a more elevated conversation about some of these things. And I'm glad that we, like you mentioned before, we're, we're doing more of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And something that, that kind of ties into that, that stuck out as well about your story, but also, you know, you, you share a lot on social media, like a lot about kind of the path that you took to get here, which I really appreciate. And that I've always just really admired is it sounds to me like there was a certain point you had mentioned you were in the gym all day training people, you were training yourself, you were competing, you were going home and writing and maybe programming for remote clients at that point. Um, it sounds like there was maybe a point that you hit where you knew you had to set some boundaries or make some choices as far as which way you really wanted to go. And I think for any of the trainers or coaches listening that are listening because they want to expand their businesses, that can be the hardest thing in the world to do, like to just cut back in one area. So can you tell me just a little bit more about like what that process was like for you and the criteria you used to figure out which direction to, to steer in? Yeah, no, it's so good. And I will say there, I think 
for me, and this is sort of my philosophy, is there always is going to be a period of time where you're overwhelmed. I don't think that we, that any of us sort of can, I don't think you can be really good at something if you haven't at some point been overwhelmed by it, because the overwhelm will force you to find a solution, right? Like that's it. So in like, yes, it was a problem for me, but it was a good problem. I had a lot of clients, right? I'm at the gym, 70, 80 hours a week. I'm writing. We had over a hundred clients at Jill Fit at one point. I had five coaches working for me. We were doing all one-on-one meal plans and stuff like that. So it was a good problem to have, but I didn't know how to manage my time or my energy, by the way. Uh, so I read the book, The 4-Hour Workweek back in 2007. And at the time, and if you guys haven't read the book by Tim Ferriss, it's basically like all about automating stuff and like whatever. And I remember just thinking to myself, Tim, you're not in the fitness industry. You don't understand this. Like we, we are at the gym at 5 a.m., We have, we do split shifts. We get home at nine o'clock at night. We take any money we possibly can. There's a lot of scarcity in the fitness industry too. This idea that like a gym owner is going to think that the trainer's taking the clients, that the client's going to leave at the drop of a hat, that like, you're not going to make this money. You don't have enough clients, like a lot of scarcity in the personal training space. And that was my experience. And I remember feeling like something has to change. I needed more time in my schedule. That was the biggest thing was I was getting home at nine o'clock at night from the gym. And then I was writing programs until like midnight or one o'clock. And I remember thinking like, I really want to grow this online thing. I have, something's got to give, right? Like I'm burning the candle at both ends. And for, I was probably doing that for about 18 months that like what I just described to you. Um, And I remember being like, I need to fix this schedule, the personal training schedule. And I'm terrified to change anything because I thought if I asked my clients to come at a different time or to pay more money or to go to a, or not train on the weekends that they would just be out. I just thought like, if I change anything, they're just going to be out. And what I failed to remember or know in that moment was that your clients want to stay with you too, right? So my clients have been with me for like eight years. They didn't want, they wanted to make it work also. Yeah. So one of the first things I did, I did three things. The first was I started batching my personal training clients. So if you are a trainer, you know that you have these little like random 30 minute time slots, hour long where you're not doing anything. And I noticed at the time I was just, it was just enough time to like check my email, eat something really quick, but they were just wasted times throughout the day, right? In that middle chunk of time. So I asked some of my clients to come later, some earlier. And then I basically was like, I just went back to back to back. And it made for a long morning, but I got it to where I was just doing Monday and Wednesday evenings. I'd have eight clients in a row. And then Tuesday and Thursday mornings, eight clients in a row. But what that did, and by the way, that took some time, right? Like some, I had to ask the client, I mean, it took like probably six months to, to get my schedule to that point where I took out all those little like random downtimes. And what that did was at least gave me Monday, Wednesday morning and Tuesday and Thursday afternoon to work on my business, my online business. So I batched my clients. I lost a couple of clients. They just couldn't change their schedule. Um, the second thing I did was I went from 60 minute sessions to 30 minute sessions And I, yes, I actually took less money, but I didn't take half less, right? So like if I'm paying a hundred, if someone's paying me a hundred dollars for an hour, I didn't just take 50, I took like 70, right? So they're still paying a little bit less and I'm still delivering a kick-ass workout in shorter amount of time. And I'm giving them 30 minutes of their life back. So if you are a trainer and you feel like you just have to do 60s or 45s because you just always have, ask yourself, can I deliver a better product in a short amount of time? If you can, it's your obligation to give that client their time back. I know we think like, well, they're coming to the gym. We want to make it worth it. Y'all, everyone wants their time back. So for me, moving to 30s, I'd have them come early. I'd have them uh, warm up themselves and then cool down themselves. So I would just train for 30. 
And the other thing I did, and this is the scariest part was I doubled my prices and I was terrified, mm-hmm. terrified to double my prices. But what happened was I ended up losing about half my, or not half, like about 10% of my clientele. And some other ones stayed, they went to fewer days. So instead of training me three days a week, they went to twice a week. Other people, I put them into little small groups, right? So there's other ways that you can do this. That whole thing, everything I just described, all those changes took two years to do. Change my schedule, change my time, increase my price. But what happened was I created a lot more time in my schedule to work my online business. You can't be a full-time trainer working full-time and then add another 10 to 20 hours on top of it to do online business without auditing your schedule. You just can't. And so it's scary, right? I was terrified that my clients would leave. I thought I'd have no money, wouldn't be able to pay my bills, be on the street, whatever. And none of that came to fruition. So you do have to trust as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's a, it's a really important thing that you laid out kind of the timeline because it wasn't like in a week you sent an email out and said, Hey guys, here's what I'm doing. Right. (laughs) It was very like I massaged all the relationships, right? These are people I've been training with you for years. And also, you know, I did just, I, I fired a client. I had never done that before. That one just always came late. was always just a pain, like whatever. I was like, you know what? It's not for me. I can refer you to someone else. I was teaching a lot of fitness classes at the time too. I was teaching about 12 classes a week. And so I just stopped teaching some of the classes and where people were disappointed, you know, like, oh, you're my favorite instructor. It's like, I can't be here 20 years from now teaching this class at six in the morning on a Saturday morning, right? Like at some point you kind of have to, and that's really for me, what it was is I didn't want to be in the gym at four in the morning when I was 60 personal training people, you know, and if, if that's you and you absolutely love that, I was just like, I had done that. I did that for over a decade. And I was like, I'm done with four in the morning. I'm done with that. I don't want to, I don't want to see this, what this can potentially look like. And I want to do something else. And I want to reach more people. I want to have a bigger impact. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that transition is a very scary one to make because again, you know, I, I owned a gym for a while. I was a trainer, like primarily for something like eight to 10 years. And I, I don't know if you felt this too, but I almost felt guilty about my burnout around it. You know, I felt like, again, it's like, who am I, if I'm not doing this all the time, who am I, if I'm not only getting four hours of sleep a night, cause I'm waking up at three 30 to drive across town, you know, to be at the gym by five or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, did totally. you feel any yeah. guilt kind of coming I, out? Definitely. Because we, I love my job, right? If you are lucky enough to be a trainer, like you have the best job in the world. Like yeah. it's me, I was like, it was so great. But like most things that start out being great, exercise is one of them, too much of it, it, there's a shadow, right? There's like an underside of that, that I think we need to have a frank conversation about. It doesn't mean you need to quit personal training. I don't think that's necessarily the solution. I think it is, you need to figure out how to manage your energy better. So not even your time, your energy. I actually read a book uh, in like, it must've been like 2010 that really impacted me. It was called The Powerful Engagement. And it was all about energy management. And I was just like, yes, I need this. This is what I need so that I can show up and be fully present with my clients, be totally focused in on them and not be distracted. Cause I don't know about you, but I go to like a Globo gym and I see trainers all the time, like not even pay attention to their clients, like on their phone. I'm just like, what? Like I would never have done that. Yeah. But it's not because they're bad trainers. It's because they are tired right? Like they're just, they're tired, especially if you go to like a big box gym, they're getting paid pennies. There's no incentive, you know? So I, I, and you know, it doesn't have to be a conversation about like gym reform, but I do think there has to, there needs to be a feeling of meaning. I think at some point you sort of lose that what you got into because you wanted to help people and what you were so passionate about turns into just a job. 
And then, you know, it's like, how do I revive this thing? And how do I stay passionate about something past 10 years, 15 years of doing it? It needs to, like anything, I think it needs to evolve. And I think the online space and social media and podcasting even gives us those outlets to, to really make our experience of fitness a lot more rich. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, I mean, I know a, a few trainers who are just, they're, they're just happy, you know, doing that and, or gym owners that are just like, yeah, like I, you know, I love this and that's wonderful. Um, but for, for trainers that are feeling, you know, burnt out or anything like that, I think it's just important to know that there's nothing wrong with wanting to grow and like wanting to evolve, like you said, and there are so many ways to do that. And I think what I discovered as well is that when I started saying no a little bit more, so, you know, initially I was that person that just wanted to help every single person in the world. And then I realized that the, the audience that I was super passionate about and that I probably had the most experience and was the most qualified to help were clients with chronic pain and making that shift from, I work with everybody to, I work with clients that have chronic pain or injuries was really terrifying. And I had some of the same types of concerns that it sounds like you did. I was like, nobody's going to want to work with me anymore, but you know, people find you and it's, it's a lot easier and easier to see if you actually are enjoying and passionate about what you're doing too. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, I think we all get into personal training as generalists and what you just said is definitely a, a great um, tidbit for anyone listening who feels as though they're a jack of all trades. Cause that's the thing. It's like, we can help anyone, right? You can help anyone walk yeah. through the door. It's like, I got you right. I've worked with everyone from like teenagers, professional athletes, like grandmas, like I've just worked with every single type of person. So I think the faster that you can sort of niche down and mm-hmm. really go all in, not only can you, like you said, like maybe derive a little more meaning from your work because you feel like, okay, I'm the actual best at this thing. Out of everything I can do, this is what I'm the absolute best at. It would be a disservice even to take on someone else when there's someone better for that person. You know, so right now, if someone comes to me and is like, hey, I just bought a gym and I want to, you know, I want to build my gym business. I'd be like, don't come to me. I'm not that right. I'm virtual business. I'm digital business. So it's like, don't, if you want to start a supplement line, I'm not the person. So you need to know not only what you're good at, but what you're not. And it's not that you can't do that. It's just not the best time use of time, both of your times, right? If someone wanted to buy a gym, I'd be like, I could maybe help you a little bit, like with the flooring, a couple steps. Right. But like, for the most part, that's not my zone of genius. So the faster you can sort of identify your zone of genius and go all in on it, the more fulfilled you are, but also the better result the client gets. And they go, you know what, out of everyone I want to work with, I want to work with Mariah because she, she doubles down on this thing. She's the go-to person for this thing and they're going to get a much better experience. So I think there's a scarcity too. If I niche down too far, there's going to be no people in my experience it's the absolute opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like the saying that I'm probably going to butcher, but the, the meaning of it is essentially that when you try to help everyone, you wind up helping no one. (laughs) And I think that's very true because especially now people have, people have like one sentence on, you know, your social media header or your website tagline or whatever it is where they're like, oh, this person does this. And if they can't understand what you do, there's so many other things that they can choose from. Um, I'm curious though, like, is this something that, I mean, you coach a lot of fitness professionals, right? Is this something that they tend to struggle with a lot? 
Totally. And I notice it the most with, so a couple of things, definitely notice it the most with personal trainers because they have, they literally have helped everyone, every type of person, every walk of life. And there's a scarcity to niching down, right? There's a scarcity to what if I leave money on the table or what if this person wants? And my whole thing is like, look, if someone DMs you privately, who is not your ideal client and they want to work with you and you feel like you can help them, sure, take them on. But you're, in terms of your front facing marketing, I know you said like one sentence on their bio. I always try and get it down to one word. Mm. So I'm literally like, what's the one word association? So Mariah, it's pain-free, right? I'm like, okay, pain-free fit. Like that to me is like a one word, like synonym. So if you have never done this, or maybe you don't know what you're known for, if you've been known historically for everything, you can go onto your social media, go into your Instagram stories and literally ask and pull your people and say, if you, this is, you can even say, so I always like, like to preface it. It's like, Hey, it's a huge favor to me. I know it's a pain in the ass, but it would help me a lot. My business, blah, blah, blah. More people feel inclined to answer. Mm. When you think of the Jill fit content, when you think about what you get here, when you think of my brand, what is one single word that comes to mind? Not two words, not a sentence. What's one single word that comes to mind. And I think you'll be surprised at how you're perceived, right? Cause that's what we're talking about is branding. So when someone tells you, and that's just a good exercise for you to know, okay, some people are here for mindset. Some people are here for moderation. Some people are here for business. Some people are here for action taking, whatever it is, it gives you a clue. So you might be thinking, oh, I'm putting out all this nutrition content, but people are showing up for workouts and you're like, oh, I guess people see me as a fittest person. So I think it's important to know how you're coming off and you can actually ask your people. And to me, that is, um, that it's hard for people who have historically worked with a lot of different people to really figure that out. But at some point you have to choose your audience. You just do, you have to just go, you know what? I'm the person for this thing. doesn't mean you can't change it later, but at some point you do need to put your stake in the ground as like, this is the person I am. This is who I help. Typically, if you're just getting started, it's going to be um, someone who's in a previous position that you were in. So it's maybe a previous version of you. So if I'm me and I'm not doing business coaching, I'm going to help people with obsessive eating, right? Because that's who I was. Um, and so think about the transformation that you've made personally. And it's probably going to be that person who hasn't quite made that transformation yet. Mm, yeah. The, your best target audience is your former self, I think is like something like that. Right. Yeah. You understand the psyche of that person. Right. So like when we talk about niche and we talk about getting into like sort of the weeds around like ideal client and stuff, we don't really talk demographics as much as what's called psychographics. Like I want to know what this person is thinking, right? I don't care if they're because food obsession, you could be 20, you could be 60, you could be obsessed with food. Right. So I don't care about necessarily your uh, you know, income level or your educational level or your uh, age. I care more about, are you experiencing the struggles, frustrations, feelings, and emotions of someone who needs, who I can help? That's what I care about. So like, what's your day-to-day, -day, your emotions, your frustrations, um, your struggles? And is that the person that I used to be? Did I have those as well? And that's mm -hmm. really what we look at. We talk about ideal client. And I, I really like how you have kind of taken you have taken your experiences and you've kind of branched them off into different diverse kind of businesses, right? So there's Moderation 365, there's Jill Fit, there's the legacy coaching, like all of that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, did you have, I guess kind of what came first? Did the ideas for those come first and then the audience followed or did you recognize that there was a direct demand and then you created those businesses? Um, it's actually a feed forward cycle. This is a great 
discussion because it's more of a feed forward cycle. So what I mean by that is I think sometimes we ask our audience like, Hey, what do you want to hear from me? Like they don't really, but they don't know, right. You're not, you're going to get absolutely zero responses to that question on your stories. So you almost have to just start. And so the way that I have my clients start is they make a list of the common concerns or frequently asked questions of their ideal client. So they think back to, okay, who's my ideal client? Who's the person that I want to work with? What are they currently struggling with? And I have them literally they take out their phone, 10 minute timer, and they just write stream consciousness as many common concerns, frequently asked questions of that person as they can. And then in their social media posts, they just answer those questions. So for example, is, you know, I don't know, like my previous version, how do you stop obsessing about food, right? What would that? And so I might just literally answer that question in a social media post to show that I'm an expert, to show them how I can help them make the same transformation. And so starting with those solutions, and then what will happen is as a result of putting that content out, I'm going to attract more people who are interested in that content. And if someone is following me, who's like, I don't know what food obsession is you talking about? This is not on my radar chances are they're going to bounce. And so it's rinse and repeat, right? So then I have more people showing up. This is called attraction marketing. If you had Maestro on, she probably talked about it. So, you know, we have more people coming in who want more of that content and then they help us come up with ideas for additional content. And so it's a feed forward cycle. So the message and the client sort of, they feed into one another, but Mm -hmm. I don't know that you can sit around and wait for someone to tell you what they need. I think you have to just start somewhere. And I like to start with previous version of you because that's the person that you know the best. You have to think back to what were the thoughts, feelings, emotions that I was having when I was really struggling and start there. And so then you, you know, sort of, you post for the audience that you want, not the audience you have. I think a lot of times we get started, we have friends, family, acquaintances, right? Like my, my aunts don't care about food obsession, right? But so maybe they unfollow me and that's fine because I'm here for my business. And so, you know, I think you have to sort of rip the bandaid off and just get started somewhere. Absolutely. And do you have any kind of tips? I I think that making the list of questions that your ideal client might ask is huge. And I don't think people realize how much that can branch off into different pieces of content. You can make a written post, you can write a blog, you can make a video, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I still feel, I mean, even for me, to be quite honest, social, social media can feel like a job at some time, at some points, right? It's like the thing that comes absolutely last after everything else I have to do for the business. Do you have any suggestions that you typically make to kind of your, your students or your clients on that front? So I will say once you start like knowing what products you have or services you have, and you kind of put together your product suite, like for example, I usually recommend you start with a high ticket one-on-one offer and then move into maybe a group offer of some kind, and maybe a sort of DIY or self-paced offer, right? So let's just say average person has three things. They have a group program, they have a one-on-one and they have a course or something. So I have my students map out their entire year ahead of time. So we do open close cart launch. And so even if you're doing one-on-one coaching, you can still do like mini launches for one-on-one coaching. I teach what's called a niche launch um, for one-on-one coaching. So I already know what's coming up. And oftentimes, at least for me and how I teach is we steer the conversation towards what's next. And that I think is a lot easier so that you don't feel like you're waking up every day and being like, what am I going to post on social today? Like, I think honestly, that's like the most disempowering (laughs) attitude to have like, what's on my mind today, right? I think it's, it's hard, but it's nice to go back to your frequently asked questions list and just like pluck one if you have one. That's why I have people do it all in real time. So they have like literally a list of like 20 questions that they could answer if they just don't have any ideas. But if you know that you're going to be launching a product or a service soon, 
then start steering the conversation in that direction. So let's say I'm going to be launching um, a group coaching program in January. I might start talking about the utility of group, community, connection, uh, support, accountability, right? I might tell a story about my own experience in a group capacity. I might talk about why, um, you know, how it's more economical, or I might talk about how, you know, you don't need one-on-one coaching. I might actually even villainize some of the other types of programs that maybe even I have. I might say, this is why you don't want to do one-on-one coaching, or this is why you don't want to do a self-paced offer, right? I might like sort of almost antagonize some of the other types of offers. So as you're getting closer, I think your content, once you have your sort of schedule of launches and products sort of mapped out, it makes it a little bit easier to sort of steer the conversation. And then also you need to take breaks, right? Like not everyone's going to be full steam ahead, like super passionate, blazing with passion every second to post on social, you know, you go through phases. And I think I've been doing this for 11 years. There's been plenty of times where I was like, I have no thoughts right here, <laughs> like none. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, I'm just going to coast or I'm going to phone it in, going to recycle old content. I'm going to let it be what it is for now. Right. And then it always kind of comes back and it's usually transient, but you just do your best and you show up the next day. And it's not every post is going to be a grand slam, but once you have thousands of posts, you know, Maestro talks about this a lot just like you got to get up and post the next day. So it can't, you can't like sit there and be so myopic about every single post. Like, oh my God, how to do, what did I do? It's just like next one, right? What's up? I, I call it post and move, right? Post and move. What's next? Like, I don't even look at my likes anymore. <laughs> I know it's like a weird, yeah. but like, it's so, it's just not even, it doesn't even register for me anymore. It's just a drop in the pond, right? It's like one little, just like deposit into the trust piggy bank. It is what yeah. it is. It's kind of like a, it becomes like a dynamic portfolio, right? People can kind of look at you and at least see what your messaging is, even if you don't have a thousand likes or, you know, 50,000 followers, whatever it is. So yeah, it's like your little brochure. It's like, here, here's your body of work. And Meister talks about this a lot too. It's just like, yeah, you need to build a body of work somewhere. So you had mentioned blogging. Obviously you have your podcast episodes. Like there needs to be somewhere where someone can binge read or binge listen or something where they can just get a lot of you and understand what you're about, how do you help, maybe your personal story, your vibe, your, you know, personality, whatever that is. And then they decide based on all of those things collectively, it's never one single post, right? No one's deciding to work with you based on one post. It's cumulative. It's all of the things. And then they just go, yeah, you know what? I think I'm ready to work with Mariah. Like, I think I'm, I'm ready for a coach. You know, what? I'm going to go to her because you're top of mind. They know you, they like you, they trust you. Right. So I think being very granular in making sure every single post is a certain way. I think it's a really it's a surefire way to just tap out. You're going to get so fatigued on that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like your programs have so much to offer from so many different angles, right? The Jill Fit programs, I've done them. There's so much fun, like exactly what I enjoy, which is kind of like programs made for like, I would say busy professional people that are just like, I want to get in, get out. Don't want to spend 90 minutes doing this. You also have things from the business side. You've also got the moderation 365 stuff. Um, what, what do you have going on kind of right now? Are you launching anything soon and where can people find that? Yeah. Amazing. Um, so next thing I'm actually launching my intro to beginner business course called FBA fitness business accelerator. I launch it twice a year and we're getting ready to launch here in March. So if you are listening to this and you are interested in learning more about digital business and starting to get more clients online, that would probably be the next thing that's happening within the business. Um, and I have a waitlist going for that right now. So I'll make sure that Mariah has the link for that. So if you guys are interested, of course, you can hit me up on Instagram at JillFit uh, or JillFit.com, all the places I'm JillFit, uh, but would love to connect you guys and hear what's going on. I love it. Yeah. And we will definitely post all of those links in the show notes, guys. So 
definitely just uh, look at those and you will have everything that you need available to you. And, uh, <laughs> There's a lot of stuff, but yeah, when you say that, I'm like, yeah, maybe I do need to niche down more. Yeah, no, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's just because it's clear that you, you know, you started out more targeted and then kind of expanded yeah. as, yeah. and the demands there. So I think that's super cool. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I could chat with you all night, <laughs> but I know that you've got a lot going on. And so I am going to kind of roll into our rapid fire questions. Are you okay. ready? I'm ready. Okay. And you- are hard for me because I'm like, oh, like I'm such a talker, but yeah, I'll go for it. Oh, I know. Right. It's no, I mean, don't feel like you have to abbreviate your answers at all. And you can also answer these from the standpoint of like, the fitness and wellness industry or the business side, whatever, whatever you feel. Um, but the first one is what do you feel is currently the biggest common misconception or lie in your industry? Um, that overnight success is possible in both that's in business and in health and fitness. Yeah. 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 Uh, so kind of timeline wise, just to, to highlight that I know for me, I started in the fitness industry in 2008, right. And now it's 2021, almost 22, um, for you, you know, when, when did you start your, I guess your first business in this space? Um, my online business started in 2010 yeah. and, um, I would say that it probably took me a full, it took me 18 months to quit my full-time job. And then it probably took me like two full years to, to make six figures online. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that details it very well. I'm just consistent work over that time. Yeah. I mean, maybe can it, can it be done faster? Maybe, but we're in the trust business, right? And trust takes time to build. It's just, it just does. It takes time to earn. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what is the best advice you ever received regarding your wellness, fitness, or your health? Hmm. <laughs> probably, I don't know that I heard it the first time, but probably that fitness should be part of your life, but not your entire life. And I wish I learned that sooner, but yeah, important part, but it doesn't need to be your entire life. And similarly, did it, did it kind of take you several years, let's say to go from the competitors training and eating schedule, right? Which is multiple hours a day, just focusing on everything to where you are, you are right now, kind of with a good balance. Mm -hmm. How long is, did that kind of major transition take? Mm -hmm. Three years. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think it can happen faster now. I think we have more resources, but for me, it took like trying to figure it out myself and like reverse engineering the process. Yeah. It took three years. Oh yeah. That's hard. Absolutely. Um, what is something that you used to preach to either your, your clients, your mentees uh, that you no longer advocate for? <laughs> so grossing about this. Um, I used to be a huge advocate of meal plans. I didn't understand why people didn't stay on them. Frankly, I was like, it's right there. You just eat what's on the plate. You just eat what's on the paper. I don't understand. Now, of course, I mean, that's embarrassing to admit, but now, of course, I realize that there's a lot of other things, other reasons why someone would not just follow a meal plan. And honestly, and I'm embarrassed to say that it took me not being able to follow my own meal plan that uh, showed me a, a level of compassion for my clients that I'd never had before. Absolutely. And again, I, I think it's almost, uh, it's almost taboo to admit how emotional food is you know, there's the whole food is fuel movement that started. I mean, I remember that from years ago and I definitely bought into that as well. It was just like, suck it up, be disciplined about it. Um, and 
that's, it's just not the case. We, I mean, happiness is tied to food. Happy events are tied to food. You know, our lives are tied to it in a very emotional way. And I think the sooner you just accept that, <laughs> the better the whole, the whole. I know the more you can just like, uh, you can navigate it. You know I mean? That's the whole thing in moderation is like, Hey, let's, let's talk about that. Let's, let's not have any foods off limits, but let's just navigate how to handle any food anytime. And to me, that's a more elevated approach, but it's also a lot more nuanced than just like follow the plan, stay compliant. Why aren't you doing it? Um, and honestly, as a coach, I think for me, it was a cop-out, right? It was an excuse for me to not have to learn how to be a good coach. Cause I just thought it was about telling the person instead of actually coaching them to success. Um, I think I see a lot of coaches doing that who are new coaches, frankly, and they're just going, well, I told them what to do. You can only, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Like that's not coaching, right? Writing a program's not coaching, giving a meal planner or setting their macros isn't coaching. What's coaching is really is everything else, right? That's the personality management, the expectation management, the compliance, the engagement, the soft skills, right? And so I think it's easy to give a meal plan. I think it's infinitely hard to be a really good coach. Absolutely. It's it's a lot harder to teach people how to make decisions for themselves and learn why they're doing things. It takes a lot longer, for sure. Totally. Last question. Do you have a favorite quote and what is it and why? <laughs> yes. And this is going to be super obnoxious because it's my own quote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like a huge, I mean, I do like quotes. I definitely like resonate with quotes a lot. I think those, I love quotes, but honestly, like I have, for me, it's more like mantras. Like, uh, I don't know, maybe like a talisman or something like something that like brings me back to center when I just feel like I'm, I'm somewhere else I'm getting emotionally hijacked or whatever. And my biggest mantra that I use all the time and with my clients is I can see this as a pain or I can see this as a puzzle. And for me, that puts me back in my power. It takes away all the emotion and the subjectivity, and it allows me to just get super clinical about what I'm doing, right? Yeah. So if something's not working in my business, I can go, okay, there's an answer here. I just don't know it yet. I have to figure it out. That's it. Everything is figure outable. Everything is pivotable. And so I used to get really emotional in my business in the first few years, like literally be like, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm so terrible. No one likes me, whatever. Catastrophizing 10 steps down the road. And now- I see everything as a puzzle. It's just clinical. And I've gotten so much more productive and I've frankly been a lot more successful uh, being able to sort of remove the emotion. So, and I think that can be applied to a lot of things. I can see this as a pain or I can see this as a puzzle. And I choose to see things as figure outable. And that's taken me a lot further. Absolutely. Yeah. Learning to see the opportunities in those, those problems or those obstacles that come up. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much. This was awesome. And I think it'll be super valuable. And I appreciate you so much for coming on. So thank you for hanging out with me. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you to the audience for listening. Appreciate yeah. you. Thank you guys and have a pain-free day, y'all. Thank you so much for listening today. I'd really appreciate it if you could like, subscribe, and leave a review on the podcast so that more people can hear us in the future. Have a pain-free day.